All right, Ephesians part one, Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse one. What we're going to do over the next 12 weeks, which by the way, this will be the record longest series I've ever done as pastor here. We're going to take 12 weeks, May, June, and July, and go through one book. 12 weeks on six chapters. So we're going to take two weeks per chapter in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to do this because God's word is important. Because God's word is life. In fact, you you see the subtitle of this series is From Death to Life. Ephesians chapter 2 specifically is going to talk about moving from death to life. But I think that's a great theme for what the word of God does in us. It, It takes us from death to life. Today we're going to talk a lot about identity. Uh, we're going to see some things about our identity as believers as we do the first part of this series. And, and I believe that some of us today are going to move from an identity of death to an identity of life. I believe that God's going to take us as we go through these 12 weeks from, from places of death in our life to places of abundance. You see, Jesus said, I came so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And I believe that's what Ephesians is going to do for us. I'm fired up for this. So without further ado, we're going to read through our 14 verses today. Then we're going to go back through them and teach on them. So starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, I'm going to warn you this next. So verse 3 through verse 14, it's 12 verses. In the original Greek that the Apostle Paul wrote this, these 12 verses are one sentence. Now, in our English translation, we don't do that uh, because we would just blow our mind. Uh, so, so the English translators went back and added periods and punctuation. Uh, but this is what I call preacher mode, Paul. Uh, this is when Paul goes from, from, from writing and teaching to just almost like dwindle getting up here. We call that moment at the end of worship, we call that the exhortation. This is the exhortation moment when you just get full of the Holy Spirit and you just start preaching and stuff starts spewing out and you don't even know exactly what you're going to say, but God just starts speaking through you. This is how I imagine this, that Paul's so excited and so fired up as he's writing this, he just starts spewing truth, just dropping truth bombs. So, so we're going to read verse 3 through 14 in one breath. We're going to see if we can pull this off. We're going to go through this the first time. Then we're going to go back and break it down, and we'll go through it verse by verse. But I'm going to try, in Jesus' name, we'll see if I got the strength, to read this the way it was originally written and see what it says to you. So so buckle up, sit tight, read along with me, because we're going to go fast. All right, you ready? Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven, on earth, and under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. 
You shouldn't clap for that. If I'd have been able to quote it, then you could have clapped, right? That would be impressive. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to pull that off. Paul goes preacher mode, and he just drops the mic at the beginning of his letter. One of the most confounding passages of scripture for translators, because there's no punctuation. It's one long run-on sentence. It's terrible grammar, but it's good preaching. He brings this to us, and so you're going to notice, maybe you already have, there's a lot of footnotes in Ephesians chapter 1, because there's a lot of places where, where, where the translators are like, well, maybe it should be in this order, and maybe this should be here, and maybe that should be there, because they're not even 100% sure, but Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, inspired to write this down, directly from the, from the will of God, the Bible says that all scripture is God breathed, and God took one breath through the apostle Paul and he gives us Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 and so I'm going to pray in just a second and as we pray we're going to invite God's breath we're going to invite God's spirit to enlighten this passage to us to teach us from the book of Ephesians to tune us in to, to the author's original intent to what Paul was trying to say to this group of believers and what it means to us Today, would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the breath of your spirit. God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his obedience to sit down and write this letter to his friends in the church in Ephesus. God, we we ask that you speak through it to us today. God, 2,000 years later, God, we believe that your your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, so we ask that through these next 12 weeks, as we slow down our pace and pick up your word and dive in, Lord, that you would teach us something in the depths of this book. God, as we look today at at identity, at what you're saying to us about who we are, Lord, we ask that you would move us from death to life. God, for those who have an identity that's that's bound in, in their sin, that's bound in shame, that's bound in guilt. God, we speak freedom today in Jesus' name. We speak life today in Jesus' name. God, for those who are under condemnation, Lord, we speak freedom. We ask you to move us from death to life through your word today, and we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the, the passage begins, the letter begins the way that Paul begins many of his letters. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And most of them kind of have this similar style, this salutation, uh, and, and then a similar closing. And so Paul begins, the first two verses, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he introduces himself. And then he says who I'm writing to. To God's holy people. Everybody say Holy. How many of the Ephesians do you think thought they were holy? I don't know. I've never been to Ephesus. I didn't live 2,000 years ago. So I could be wrong. But my guess is the Ephesians were not that different from us. My, my guess is the Ephesians probably looked at their own lives and said, man, here's some things that don't quite add up to what God's calling me to. And yet Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking through God's will, as he introduces at the beginning, he says, you are God's holy people. You're set apart. You're not like the rest. God has a unique plan and a unique purpose for you. And I believe the same thing is true. I believe we could rewrite this and say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Olive Branch. 
to God's holy people in Bahalia. There's some holy people in Bahalia, praise God. To God's holy people in Memphis. To God's holy people in DeSoto County. To God's holy people. And it's easy to say, well, he ain't writing to me, pastor. That's for somebody else. But he's writing this to the church. He recognizes at the beginning that, that, that there's a holiness, there's a set-apartness in God's people. Whether we feel it or not, whether we, we recognize it in our own lives or not, God sees it. And see, what he's going to do over these next few verses is he's going to speak to us about what God sees when he looks at his people. What does God see when he looks at you and at me? That's what he's going to teach us on. Verse 2, he says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Paul. Man, he, he speaks and he says, look, this is from me, but really it's from God. Really, this is from Jesus. This is to you from him. And so we're going to receive it today. And over the next few weeks, we're going to receive this as if it was to us from God. Can we do that? Can we embrace his word in such a way that we say, you know what, God, I believe you actually wrote this, inspired Paul to write this 2,000 years ago because you knew one day I was going to read it. You knew one day I was going to be here. And you knew one day I was going to have some certain struggles and some certain challenges and some certain weaknesses and some certain things that I didn't understand real well. And you wanted to speak to me to help make my life better. You wanted to move me from death into life. I believe that's what God is trying to do with this. Before we get too far into our run-on sentence... I want to introduce a little bit about this book. I want to talk a little bit about the context, about what is going on here. Um, the city of Ephesus is where this church was. Ephesus is a city in, in what is now modern Selchuk, Turkey. I've got a map, if you'll go ahead and put that up there for us. Uh, the, the map here of, of the ancient uh, Mediterranean. So if you can see, Ephesians is almost, Ephesus is almost right in the middle, uh, kind of next to Colossae. By the way, the book of Colossians right next to it in scripture, is oftentimes considered the book of Ephesians twin. Uh, of the six chapters, about three chapters overlap completely. Uh, Paul, these are what, two of what are called the prison epistles. Two books, two letters that Paul wrote to churches while he was in prison a, a, as a captive for the glory of God, as somebody who was in prison because he was preaching and telling people about Jesus. So he wrote these, this series of letters. And in this series of letters, he writes two very similar letters to Ephesus and to Colossae. And so Paul is in Rome in prison, the very top left-hand corner. And he's sending this to Ephesus, which is now modern Turkey. Uh, but it was a, a Greek city, a city of the Greek culture. Ephesus is famous uh, for a few things. Um, go ahead and put up the picture of the temple of Artemis. So Ephesus had uh, this temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, the temple to Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess uh, of hunting. It sounds like something we could get behind in Mississippi, right? Uh, she was also known as the goddess of wild animals, the goddess of the wilderness, and then these two, which really are funny to me. She was the goddess of childbirth and the goddess of virginity. And if you don't know why that's funny, you can talk to mom and dad later. Um, not sure how those two mesh together, but I'm not a Greek scholar. But, but I know she was known as the goddess of these things. And so Ephesus was the center of worship for this Greek goddess Artemis. 
Uh, we, we find Ephesus uh, many times in the book of Acts. In fact, Paul first stops in Ephesus in Acts 18, 19 through 21. Very, very quick stop in Ephesus. Then all of Acts 19 documents Paul's three years in Ephesus. He was there for three years on his second stop. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38, Paul actually meets with the, the elders from Ephesus. They weren't in Ephesus. He brought them in as he's in a city called Miletus. Uh, and, and, and he meets with these Greek or these Ephesian elders. So we, we see a lot in the book of Acts. We actually see Ephesus pop up again in Revelation after this book is written. So what happens in Acts is before Ephesians is written. What happens in Revelation is after Ephesians is written. So we're going to come back to Revelation chapter 2 as it talks about Ephesus at the end of our series and kind of bookend it that way. But, but to introduce, Paul had spent a large amount of time here. His three years in Ephesus was one of his longest stays anywhere helping to build the church. And we don't have time to read through all of this in the book of Acts, but I encourage you, this week, to set up this series, go back and read the, the, those three verses in Acts chapter 18, 19 through 21. Read all the way through Acts 19 and, and this large section in Acts 20 starting at verse 17. It's going to give you the context of, of who Paul is writing to. Um, a couple famous things happen in these passages just so you maybe trigger your memory. It's in Ephesus where Paul comes upon a group of about 12 people who know Jesus. They've been baptized into Jesus. They've received Jesus. And as he arrives back on his three-year stay, he bumps into them early on. He's like, hey, did you guys receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you came to Jesus? And they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul prays for them, and they receive this power, this boldness that comes with his baptism. It's also in Ephesus that, that Paul's going around, and he's casting out demons. Now, again, this is the center of demonic worship. It's the center of, uh, of some very nasty stuff that's going on. And Paul has many supernatural experiences here, experiences with demons, experiences with, with sorcery, experiences with some really freaky, creepy stuff. And so he's going around and God's using him to bring people free, to move people from death to life. And there's these seven brothers, they're sons of a man named Sceva. And Sceva is this Jewish priest. And so they start going around casting out demons. And you know how they cast out demons? They say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. They didn't know Jesus themselves, but they knew what they'd seen Paul do. And it works a couple of times, or it seems like it works a couple of times. And then they pick on the wrong demon. And uh, you ever picked on the wrong demon before? Uh, demon that fights back? Well, this guy fought back. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? And then the demons investing this man go ahead and beat these seven dudes down. One dude takes out seven guys because of the demonic power in them. So these are some of the famous things that happen in Ephesus. To give you some context, there's actually also a riot in Ephesus. There's a dude named Demetrius, and Demetrius is a metal worker, and, and he works on, on making little idols of Artemis for people to purchase so they can worship Artemis at home. Yeah, they come to the temple, but sometimes you can't make it to the temple, so, so he gets, puts together these idols, and, and Paul comes to town, and people start leaving Artemis and coming to Jesus, and Demetrius starts losing money. And so he, he starts a riot, man. This Paul, he's destroying our culture. This Paul, he's destroying our economy. This isn't okay. And they start a riot. Uh, and you can read all about that in Acts chapter 19. So some really interesting things happen 
as Paul is in Ephesus. Now, we don't know how long it is from the time that Paul leaves Ephesus till the time he writes this letter. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 years. It might be less. Bible scholars aren't 100% sure. Uh, but what's interesting about the book of, Ephes- of Ephesians is there's actually some debate about whether it was actually written to the Ephesians. Because it doesn't, doesn't include a lot of things that are usually characteristic of, of Paul's writings. Specifically, normally when Paul has relationship with the church, he makes a lot of shout outs. If, you, if you've read any of Paul's letters, towards the end of his letters, he's going to mention a lot of people. Say hello to so-and-so. Man, ch- tell so-and-so I'm praying for them. I can't, you know, I miss you, blah, blah, blah. Like, he, he's very personal in his letters. And Ephesians... A place, Ephesus, a city he spent three years in, he makes almost none of those personal shout-outs. So here's what Bible scholars believe. They believe that this was written as a circular letter that first went to Ephesus, but it was not written specifically to Ephesus. It was actually written for the whole region. Uh, And and so it was written, and and it comes to Ephesus, and then it's copied, and it's passed on to the next town, and the next town, and the next town, and the next town. That this is Paul's original intent, and that's why he didn't get very personal. It also doesn't hit on any specific challenges in the church. Many of Paul's letters are going to address, hey, I know you've got this issue. I know you've got this question. I know there's this problem rising up. Ephesians doesn't do that. Ephesians is very general. And that's really good news for us because it's general, it's applicable for all of God's people. I told you this last week, and we're going to dive in here in just a second, but just to give you a little bit more context, there's six chapters in Ephesians. The first three are very vertical. They're going to talk about God. They're going to tell us about who he is and about how he moves in our lives, what he's done for us, how he's moved us from death to life. And then the last three chapters are going to be very horizontal. How do we treat people? How do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? Um, uh, one other thing I want to tell you before we get into it. Acts chapter 20, as, as Paul's meeting with the, the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, he says this. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wood, wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day and with tears. Paul loved this church, but he recognized, he knew in the spirit that the enemy was going to bring some division. The enemy was going to bring some false teaching. And so many, think, many Bible scholars believe that this book was actually written to give the, the strong biblical foundation that they needed to prevent these false truths from popping up. So all that being said, chapter 1 verse 3. What what we're going to do is we're going to go through here and we're going to see 14 things in this one sentence that Paul says about you and he says about me. Now, of of anything in the book of Ephesians, I've preached this passage the most. Uh, It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. I've taught on it in the 662 and we've picked out seven or eight things that it says. We actually teach on it in discovery. If you go through and join City Church, uh, part three in in personal discovery, we we pull out about nine or ten things from this passage that Paul says, just for time's sake. But in this series, we're doing it all. So we're going to see all 14 things that Paul says about you and says about me. If you're taking notes, be ready because we're going to have to move very quickly. Uh, But I think this is so, so foundational to understanding who we are. 14 identity statements in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. The first thing that Paul says about you is you're blessed. 
If you're a Christian, you are blessed. Now, I know some of us look at our lives and say, yeah, I don't feel that blessed. Some of us can look at, look at our situation. We can look at our job situation. We can look at our home. We, we can look at the things coming against us, and we're like, man, I just don't feel very blessed. I don't think I'm very blessed. But Paul says, God sees you as blessed. And then he defines what that means. He says, he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's not talking about financial blessing here. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us financially, but that's not what he's talking about. He defines what he's speaking of. He says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In other words, at the moment you receive Jesus, you got all that God's got to give you. He deposited in you his Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit contains the power to give you anything that you need from God. Now, most of us don't begin accessing everything from God the moment we get saved, do we? None of us, in fact, begin accessing everything from God the moment we get saved. But that doesn't mean it's not there. So, so, so it changes the way that we pray. Instead of asking God for, for more of his love or more of his power, what we really should say is, God, Give me a greater ability to walk in the love you've already given me. Give me a better ability to tap into the power that's inside of me. Like, help me to, to take advantage of what's already there. Now, I don't think if you pray, God, give me more love or give me more power, that God's like, well, you're praying wrong, so I'm not going to answer. That's not the way that God is. But I think there's power in understanding what he's already done and in praying the truth of God's word. So, so right up off the top, God says you're blessed. Look at somebody and say you're blessed. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. What a statement. Then verse 4, he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So number two, you're chosen. You're chosen. There, there, there's a lot of power in this. If you were here uh, Wednesday night for First Wednesdays, Mark Mincy uh, taught on Mission OB, and he talked about the last and how what it feels like to be the last one picked and how he's been through that in sports and, and had that experience. And if you were the first one picked, he hates you, and he didn't really mean it. But, uh, but he talked about that. And what an amazing statement. You're God's first-round draft pick. He chose you. He said, I want you on my team. I want you in my family. I want you over here. You've been chosen by the one whose opinion matters the most. Maybe you've been chosen and embraced by people. Maybe you've been rejected and neglected by people. Or maybe you're like most of us and you've been in seasons of both. Regardless, the word of God says that he himself, God Almighty, looked at you and chose you. He chose us in him when? Before the creation of the world. He didn't choose you when he finally got around to it. He didn't choose you when, man, somebody else said no, so I guess I got to go to my second choice. Before he even breathed out creation, he said, I want you. You're mine. You're going to be on my team. You're going to be in my family. But he didn't just choose us in those ways. It says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. We already talked about this in the salutation. You're holy. Now, I don't know about you, but that one's hard for me to get. Because I got a whole list of reasons why I'm unholy. I got a whole list of reasons why, why that doesn't apply to me. But God's opinion trumps mine. 
And he says, you're holy. I chose you to be holy. I chose you to be holy. And not only holy, it says he chose us to be blameless in his sight. Now, now you've got to understand blamelessness. Blameless doesn't mean there's nothing that you've done that could be blamed on you. Because let's be real, all of us have some blame that's accumulated. All of us have hurt some people, right? Like a lot of times we think of all the ways that other people have hurt us. But if we're real honest, all of us have hurt some people. I've done some awful stuff, man. When, when I was in middle school, I had a buddy named Clint who, who, who had this big crush on this girl, Anna, that I was really good friends with. And so, so I created this plan where we were going to trick Clint into thinking Anna liked him too. Awful messed up man despicable stuff broke this kid's heart why so that i could impress a different girl stupid wrong didn't work anyway uh right like i'm not blameless i've hurt some people but god looks at me and he says you're blameless why because the blame's already been placed on jesus i'm blameless because my blame went on him and he took my blame to the cross He nailed my blame to the cross. And so when God sees me, the only one whose opinion matters, he says, Troy, you're blameless. We're holy and we're blameless. And it doesn't matter what your feelings say. It doesn't matter what your past says. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what your family thinks about you. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks about you. What matters is what God thinks. He says you're blameless. How freeing could that be for some of us? Then it goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We got a whole lot of them in that sentence, so, so, and it's not even a sentence. That's just a piece of a sentence in Paul's writing. So let's, let's go through these. He says he did this in love. So this one we mostly know. Most of us have, have grabbed a hold of this, but maybe you need a reminder of it today. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved by God Almighty himself. By Jesus Christ himself, he looks down at you in whatever season of life you're in. Whether you're saved today or you're not saved, I think this one applies to all of us. Now, and all of these don't apply to all of us. Most of these are just for Christians. But this one applies to anybody in this room. Jesus Christ loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Like we know it, we've heard it. But sometimes the things that we've heard the most lose the the most impact. Oh, we're loved. God loves us, right? And, And we start to kind of take that for granted. Can we just awaken today to the the majesty, to the amazingness of the fact that we're loved by God? You're loved. Look at somebody and say, You're loved. Look at somebody else and say, I'm loved. We're loved. So in love, it says he predestined us. Now, we can get into a lot of controversy on this one. Uh, but here's what we'll say. The Bible says we're predestined, so we're predestined. We can argue about what that means. I, I fall more on the free will side of the debate. I believe that, that God knew who was going to be saved. I don't think that that means that God predestined other people to go to hell. That's what I don't believe. I don't believe in double predestination, which is what some people will teach. But I absolutely believe in predestination. It's biblical. God predestined us to receive this. What did we just say? He said, before the creation of the world, he chose you. He said, I want you. 
So we're, we're predestined. But we're predestined for something specific, he said. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So we're adopted. You may give a new family. When, when somebody gets adopted, they get a new last name, maybe a new first name. They, they, they get a new place to live. They, they, they get new, all kinds of new things. They get a new family, right? Like we receive all those things when we're adopted. But the specific Greek word that's used here has a very specific meaning. Being adopted to sonship, sonship's the next thing that you have. You have sonship. Being adopted to sonship was, was, a, was a legal proceeding in, in the Roman culture where somebody who wasn't part of the family got added into the inheritance. So they weren't just adopted. They didn't just come live in the house. They didn't just come have the stuff, but they were legally an heir. So Paul is saying, you were adopted unto sonship. You've legally been made an heir. You have rights to an inheritance. Why? Because Jesus signed your name into his family. Because Jesus paid your debt. So in love, he had predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, he didn't do it because he had to. Didn't do it begrudgingly, didn't do it nonchalantly. He was pleased to add you to his family. He was pleased to sign you in in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Verse seven, it says, in him, excuse me, I skipped verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, redemption. Redemption, I've taught on this a few times, but I think a lot of us maybe still need to be reminded. Redemption is one of those Christianese words that we use that most of us don't know what it means. Uh, so redeemed literally means to be brought back to your proper place. When, when we receive in the mail, we get Kroger coupons. Uh, and they say every once in a while we get really good Kroger coupons, and it'll be like a free pack of bacon. You don't get much better than a free pack of bacon, right? Uh, a free pack of bottled water. It's like we love those free coupons. And so what do we do? We take that thing back to Kroger, and we pick out a pack of bacon, and we take it up to the counter, and we give them their coupon. We redeem the coupon. We bring it back to its rightful place. Redemption is powerful because a lot of times we find our identity point in, in things like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is true, but it's not the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is for we were created in God's image. And God looked down on the day that he created mankind and said, it is very good. The beginning of the story, it starts right. It doesn't start with sin. It doesn't start with the fall. It starts with an incredible creation, an amazing vision that God had. And so to be redeemed means we've been restored back to the rightful place. We've been brought back to the place where God looks at you and says it's very good. We've been brought back to the place where, where God can commune with us and spend time with us on a daily basis. Man, we go back and read about Adam and Eve walking around with God in the garden, and that's like crazy. That was his plan from the beginning. We've been redeemed. We've been brought back to our rightful place. In him, we have redemption through what? Through the blood of Jesus. His blood has redeemed us. We have the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is the next one on the list. Uh, it's number 10, I believe. It's one that I don't have to explain real in depth because we get this one, right? But, but forgiveness is, is actually a financial term. It, it means to wipe away a debt, 
To be forgiven means you no longer owe what you once owed. That, that the one that, that you owe that to has decided, you know what, I'm going to release you of it. My little brother, many of you know him. He, he used to live in the area. Um, I love him to death. That I've, I've forgiven some debts for him. He, he totaled a car of mine. He, I, I can't even go through the whole list because then I'll start getting mad again. Uh, maybe, maybe I haven't forgiven him as much as I thought, right? Uh, We've had to wipe away a lot of debt and say, you know what? You don't owe me that anymore. God did that for us. You're forgiven. He said, you don't owe me anymore. I release you from what you owe me. He says, we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. He just poured it out and poured it out and poured it out and poured it out. His grace has been poured out on us so massively and so significantly. So generously, it says, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So, so he's speaking to God's plan. We got four more verses. Hang with me. Don't give up here. It says, in him we were also chosen. We go back to chosen. Having been predestined, going back to predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Last two verses here. And you also were included. You were included. You ever been excluded from something? Ever had the party you didn't get an invite to? ever had the event going on that nobody told you about, ever had something that, you mean, a, a team you tried out for and you didn't make the cut. This is a God included you. He didn't exclude you. Here's what I believe. We're talking about predestination. I, I believe that God includes us to be agents of his inclusion. I don't believe that God includes me to exclude somebody else. I believe he includes me in order that I can go help include others. But I've been included. You've been included. I know sometimes with, there's some deep wounds, some deep hurts, because maybe it feels like another sibling was more favored, or maybe it feels like another coworker who hasn't really earned that place just gets all the favor because they're friends with the boss. They got the promotion. They got this thing. They got that thing. God in heaven includes you. He's included you. He's included you in his plan. He's included you in his family. He's included you in all that he has in his very best you also were included in Christ. When? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believe you were marked, I believe it's number 11, excuse me, number 12. Number 12, you were marked in him with a seal, number 13. Let's talk about marked with the seal. He says you're marked. In other words, and actually let's finish this verse so that we can teach it better. He says you were marked in him with a seal, what? The promise of the Holy Spirit. So what does God see when he looks at his people? He sees two things. When God looks at his people, number one, he sees the blood of Jesus, which has washed away our sin. Number two, he sees his Holy Spirit living in you. That's what he sees. You were marked. The, the reason that God knows from heaven, the reason the Father looks down and sees, that's one of mine, is he sees his Spirit in you. You've been marked. Then it says with the seal. So in this day and age, there's, there's a Roman emperor, right? There's governors, there's different people in the Roman Empire who had authority to issue decrees. When the governor or the emperor would issue a decree, they, they didn't have like 
TV news to put that out there. They didn't have a press conference and say, here's what's going to go on in my kingdom. All they had were scrolls that would be sent out all throughout the, the area that, that this specific decree uh, applied to. And so what would happen is the, the Roman governor, the Roman emperor, he had a ring. And it was called a signet ring. It was a ring with a mark, with a seal on it. And he would take that scroll and he would seal it with his ring. And that meant it's irrevocable. It can't be changed. This decree has been sealed. And so when God marked you, he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He said, this is irrevocable. You've received salvation. I've brought you in. My spirit lives in you. And this is who you are. I've changed who you are completely. You've been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's a deposit guaranteeing, number 14, you're guaranteed. Guaranteeing our inheritance. Your inheritance is guaranteed until the redemption of those who are God's position. To the praise of his glory. We just went through 14 incredible things that God says about you. If we could get a hold of like five of those, it'd change our lives. it changed the way that we live. Here's why this is so important to me. Um, Neil Anderson, who wrote many books, but he says this. He's one of my favorite Christian authors. He says that the most important thing that you believe is your belief about God. The second most important thing you believe is your belief about yourself. He said, because you cannot consistently behave in a way that runs contrary to what you believe about yourself. In other words, my identity matters. In other words, unless I believe I'm forgiven, I can't act forgiven. Unless I believe I'm blameless, I can't act blameless. Unless I believe I'm blessed, I'm not going to act like I'm not blessed. Unless I believe I'm holy, I'm going to live unholy. Unless I believe I'm redeemed, I'm not going to live a redeemed life, right? Like I've got to internalize that. I've got to receive it. I've got to make it my identity. So let me tell you some of my story as we get ready to close. Um, I had a really incredible experience with God at the beginning of eighth grade. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God touched my life and changed my life and filled me with a boldness. Like my whole personality changed. At the beginning of eighth grade, I remember I had to do a, a project in health class where I had to get up and talk about uh, it was a drug. We were assigned a, like an illicit drug. We were supposed to tell like why not to do this. So I had PCP. So I, so I did my project on PCP and I got up there and I was shaking. I was terrified. I was sick. Like there was nothing about public speaking that I enjoyed. You know, public speaking is the number one fear of Americans. I was right there. Now I do this at least once a week. Uh, I, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and God just did some crazy stuff in me. And that next Wednesday night, I got up and I gave my testimony and I was free. I didn't care all anymore what, what everybody thought. I wasn't worried about if stuff was going to come out right. Like everything changed. Even got to the point where I'd enjoy being in front of people and being the center of attention and those things. And now I got to be careful like not to enjoy that too much. But, but God did some awesome stuff and he ended up actually using me to lead about nine, ten of my friends to Jesus in the next month. And I don't say that for my glory. I say that for his. But... Even though I'd had this amazing experience with God, I wasn't rooted in scripture. And I didn't know who I was in Christ. God did some awesome stuff in me, but I didn't yet get it completely. And so what happened? Started dating a girl, got dumped, got heartbroken, decided I was gonna prove something and started living like an idiot. And lived a very hypocritical life, lived a very contrary life, in fact, 
pretty much all those people that I led to Christ ended up falling back away because I didn't live who I said I was. Why did that happen? Because I wasn't rooted in the scripture. I wasn't rooted in my identity in Christ. I didn't know who I was. I couldn't live a holy life because I didn't think I was holy. I couldn't live a blameless life because I didn't think I was blameless. I couldn't live a forgiven life because I didn't really understand how I'd been forgiven. It wasn't really until about six years later when I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma to do an internship. A church called Church on the Move and sat under the teaching of a man named Pastor Willie George that I started to get it. For four years, I was blessed to sit under his phenomenal teaching and, and God began to reprogram my identity. And see, I'd had these seasons in high school and in middle school where I did awesome stuff, man, where God used me in great ways. And I was absolutely a Christian and, and absolutely, I loved Jesus, but I'd also have seasons where I did really, really sinful stuff, really grotesque stuff, really stuff that did not glorify him in any way, shape or form and made a fool of him. And I did this Christian roller coaster thing. You know what got me off the roller coaster? It's this right here. It's discovering what God sees when he looks at me. There is power in this stuff. How did I move from, from seasons of death into being able to fully embrace the abundant life that God had for me, learning who I am? See, I always knew who God was. I always knew how awesome he was. I always had an incredible respect for him. But for a long time, I didn't know who I was. And maybe you're here today and you don't know who you are. Maybe you think God is amazing and he's worthy of praise and you want to honor him and there's something in you, there's a desire there, but you're on that spiritual roller coaster. Man, Sundays are great when you show up to church and you're fired up and then by Tuesday it's like, man, I'm just stuck in the same old rut. I'm stuck in the same old place. I'm stuck in the same old complacency, this junk, this lukewarmness. I dare say a big part of that is you don't have your identity in Christ. And if you'll tap into Ephesians chapter one, I mean, I'm talking about read this over yourself every day. I'm talking about get up in the morning and confess, I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm blessed, I'm blameless, I'm adopted, I'm a son or a daughter of the king, I'm guaranteed, I've got an inheritance, I'm marked, I'm sealed. I'm talking about speaking those things over your life. It's not gonna happen overnight didn't happen overnight for me it was a four-year process but little by little by little you're going to start embracing the identity of God's word and rejecting the identity of the flesh little by little the the mistakes of your past are going to begin to fade the, the this junk the habits are going to begin to get driven off of you little by little God's going to set you free it doesn't happen because I had one sermon that you got fired up about it happens because day after day I embrace God what you say about me is more important than what I say about myself here's the take-home point for today here's what I want you to write down I am whatever God says I am I am whatever God says I am I'm not my past I'm not my mistakes I'm not my junk I'm not my family history I'm not any of that I'm simply what God says I am and if you can internalize that and believe that and begin to find out what he says I believe with all my heart it'll change your life. We call this series Moving from Death 
to life. It's not just a catchy subtitle. It's truly what I believe God wants to do through the power of his word. God wants to take you from those, those, those areas of death and give you abundant life. He wants to take you from that complacency, from that roller coaster, from that, 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 that just, man, I know what that's like. It's defeating. It's discouraging. I know what that feels like to feel like, man, every day I'm just failing. God doesn't want you to feel like a failure. He wants you to walk in the power of his victory and the life of Jesus Christ. And one of the most important ways you can get there is begin to believe that you are who God says you are. I am whatever God says I am, and I'm nothing else. I'm nothing that God doesn't say. If he says it, I believe it, and I receive it, and I embrace it. And if he doesn't say it, I'm going to rebuke it, and I'm going to cast it down. And don't get me wrong, because I sat under that for four years doesn't mean every day I get this right. It's still a battle. It's still a process. I still have to internalize his word. I still have to stand on his promises. I still have to speak these things over myself, but it's a whole lot easier because I've received it. Start the process today. Maybe you're already in the process. Embrace the process. Accelerate the process. Grab a hold of it. You are whatever God says you are. Amen. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much for for what you are up to in this place, for what you are doing. Lord, I ask that you would set people free today in Jesus' name. Set them free from the lies of the enemy. Set them free from condemnation. Set them free from blame. Set them free from shame. Set them free, God, from, from, from feeling like a failure. Set them free from embracing a lie about who they are. God, set them free in Jesus' name.